ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Good afternoon and happy Friday. Selena Green with you today. Now, are you someone who regularly travels our outback roads? And if so, what's, what are you seeing in terms of the outback road conditions and the rate of maintenance and repair? Now, this was the focus of a government and industry meeting yesterday. You'll hear more on that in a moment. But I'd like to hear your experience. And you can share it on my talkback number, which is 1300 222 Or send me a text anytime throughout the program to 0467 922 Also coming up, what have you noticed about your insurance premiums of late? Have they been climbing and climbing to the point where you think, is it even worth it? Well, you'll hear from one farmer who certainly understands why people are asking themselves that question. I think everyone knows the cost of everything's gone up and new machinery and and the value of the machinery that you have got. And if you do have to, you know, replace it, the cost of that is, you know, increased significantly as well. So we're sort of getting a double whammy here. That's all coming up in this next half an hour. But first today, South Australia has around 10,000 kilometres of outback roads and they're under pressure from increasing traffic and extreme weather events. They're also, of course, vitally important to the livestock industry. Well, yesterday a government forum was held in Port Augusta, bringing together primary producers, industry and community groups, as well as government agencies, to talk about how the roads are being managed and maintained and what could be done differently. It was convened by the Regional Roads Minister at the request of Livestock SA, and I asked Livestock SA's CEO, Travis Tobin, what came out of it. Yes, Selena, we requested the Minister initiate the meeting just because there's a growing frustration. Of course, it's always there, but it seems to have been growing over recent years amongst uh, our members uh, across the north of the state, just with the condition of the roads, the, the maintenance schedule and the sort of impacts that it's having on business. So, um, you know, it, it was good the Minister did convene the meeting. It was, it was a really broad stakeholder group that were present, so, um, you know, including ourselves, uh, mining, uh, transport industry reps, um, then outback communities, uh, RDAs, um, landscape boards, and then government departments, and, and there's a few others I've no doubt missed. Um, uh, also, you know, producer reps on, on our behalf as well. So it was a good group, really just... Uh, and the, the purpose of the meeting was just to hear from the various stakeholders as to what problems are they seeing and looking for solutions as to how do we do things differently because, as I was saying, it, it doesn't seem to be getting any better and we need to do it and do better and we can do better. So it's really just that as the premise of, of getting it together and, yeah, the Minister and senior uh, departmental officials. So, um, you know, they were there to, to listen and draw responses to, as they could. But obviously a lot of things will need to be followed up. What's the kind of feedback and what are you hearing about some of the, the conditions out there and the pace of maintenance and how well that's been able to keep up? One of the things we constantly hear is, um, you know, crews on the ground. So, you know, our members tell us there used to be 11 crews and then they've reduced down to seven and now they're sort of back at times to four. So obviously that means 
by definition, you don't have the same number of roads getting graded and the frequency with which they're getting graded is a lot less. Uh, and then because they're pressured for time, uh, perhaps the, the work that's been conducted is maybe not the same as what it would have been done in the past. So um, it, it is a deteriorating issue, but we absolutely appreciate, you know, government's got fiscal constraints and there's not endless buckets of money and those sorts of things, which is why we think um, there needs to be a way of looking at it being a bit more transparent and engaged with the key users of the road. Uh, what are the prioritisations? What needs to be done? What are some of the learnings that can be taken from those that have, you know, years and years of, of knowledge and experience out there with um, road conditions and, you know, even res- responding to road conditions after weather events and what's the best way to go about uh, tackling what problems, you know, all those sorts of things. So, um, that's why we were really encouraged. It was also one of the things we recommended was that um, you know a, a consultative group be set up, um, and yeah, we'll, we'll look forward to seeing what that does and, and being engaged in that. Now, how vital, Travis, are these roads to the livestock industry? It's a critical uh, lifeblood for for livestock producers and not just our industry but all industries operating um, you know in remote areas across the north so as I mentioned earlier that you know the mining and energy industry is represented there as well and we have a lot of sort of current issues from an industry perspective because you know what's happening is there's increased traffic by quite a substantial amount and also the, the types of vehicles that are using the roads is changing over time as well so a lot of that's through tourism, but also uh, just in the types of machinery that are, are using roads. So where it becomes a challenge for a business is it's the value of the cargo that you're carrying um, on the roads and then obviously the time delays, uh, the impact on uh, equipment, the costs associated with that both in time and in uh, physical repairs, etc. But even for a livestock business, it goes further because not only is it a valuable cargo that you're transporting, there's also animal welfare concerns that that people are looking uh, to manage. So all of that plays in. And the other thing that comes up too is because labour in in some areas of our industry is always challenging and transport is is, is another one, people don't want to drive uh, trucks for long distances on really, really bad roads. So it adds to that challenge of, of... getting the right people in the right jobs. Um, so it, it has multiple effects. You know, it's not just a financial one. There's a lot of other costs involved. As you say, going forward, there's a, a new advisory group set up and what Livestock SA will be, be part of that? We haven't been advised of the full makeup of the group yet, just been provided with a draft in terms of reference as to what the group will do. Um, we would anticipate having strong representation on there uh, and so far as members in the region uh, that know what they're talking about. And, yeah, we'll we'll see how that goes. But there's also, aside from that, we have members that are involved with an Outback Roads group and, you know, they're they're fairly keen to continue being uh, involved in this sort of work and and, uh, ideally through a more collaborative committee. But um, if not, I'm sure, as I said, the challenges are are fairly great for them. So if not, I'm sure they'll continue to provide good advice on, on what needs to be done when and how sort of thing for where they live and work.
And Travis, while I have you, and this is completely off off topic, but um, I don't know if you saw that earlier this week, the Wool Producers Australia announced they'd withdrawn their support for the National Electronic ID Scheme for Sheep and Goats. Well, they're not opposing the scheme itself, but they do have some concerns about the rollout not being nationally consistent and some of the funding that the, the states and feds are, are putting into the rollout. Where's Livestock SA on, on how the, the rollout is going here in South Australia? Yeah, I did see that, Selena, earlier the week. We've had the same approach to this transition from when it started back in September 2022. So we developed a set of principles. Uh, they've been on our website for, you know, ever since then sort of thing. I, I think there's eight off the top of my head. Um, but they are similarly our equitable funding and harmonisation and those sorts of things because we know if we don't get those right, it won't work. So I guess we've been very focused in making sure our area of influence in South Australia, um, where we've been able to uh, negotiate with government on trying to make sure those things are happening, and to date they have been. We've seen, we've realised equitable funding from government across the supply chain. We've seen a recognition that producers are bearing the majority of the cost by uh, the government developing and, and now releasing the most generous tag rebate scheme of any jurisdiction. So... I guess that's how we've been approaching it, is you can only influence what you can influence, um, and we've been doing it the best we can in South Australia. But as I said, all of what we do goes back to the principles, and they include harmonisation, they include equitable funding, they include um, harnessing the benefits through the supply chain, limiting disruptions to the industry, all those sorts of things. So um, where things don't meet with those principles that we set, that's where we don't agree. Obviously, this is a, a this is going to be a national program. Are you sort of looking to other states or speaking with other states about how that is going to work? Yeah, that's right, Selena, and we do that ongoing. So, uh, a little while back now, I, I can't remember if we spoke about it on on the program, but we did host a meeting here in Adelaide at the showgrounds with, between state farming organisations, exactly for that to try to make sure uh, when we are negotiating at a state level. We are focused on harmonisation. There was a communique put out after that meeting between the different state bodies. Um, we've also collectively written to Minister Watt from a state perspective, um, you know, pointing out the concerns we had at a state level uh, and the considerations we want to see at a federal level. Um, and, yeah, so those discussions are ongoing between state bodies um, and that's what we've got to keep doing because the only way this system will work effectively is if it is harmonised, if there is equity through the system and we do manage to reduce the burden on producers so wherever possible and, and harness the benefits that they can gain through it. That's the only way this will be successful. So, yeah, we'll keep talking to the other jurisdictions and we'll keep talking to the federal government as needed, but you know, noting that not necessarily in our direct area of influence when it comes to the federal decisions. That is Livestock SA CEO Travis Tobin speaking to me earlier. And as we covered on the country earlier this week, uh, you may have heard that Peak Body Wool Producers Australia has withdrawn its support for the National Electronic Identification Scheme for sheep and goats. Wool Producers Australia President Steve Harrison says while they strongly are supportive of a national EID scheme in principle, that support is contingent on the scheme being nationally consistent. Wool Producers said they also do not believe that adequate government funding from both the Commonwealth and state governments has been committed. I reached out to the South Australian Ag Minister Claire Scriven on this and received this statement in response, which I'll read. 
As we've heard from industry, they continue to support the importance of electronic identification system being implemented as an efficient system to trace disease outbreaks and protect our livestock industries. The statement says the South Australian government continues to support a national approach to the individual tracking of sheep and farm goats to improve our world-leading livestock traceability systems and ensure they remain fit for purpose. The statement goes on to say a $12.8 million implementation program incorporating $9.3 million allocated in the current state budget includes one of the most generous subsidies is underway and will continue. This program includes tag support for producers and rebates for essential EID infrastructure in the supply chain. And the statement from the Ag Minister wraps up by saying South Australia will continue to progress towards the introduction of a mandatory sheep and goat EID system to occur in South Australia by January 1, 2025. Rollout is being informed by key stakeholders, including Livestock SA and the Industry Advisory Committee that includes representatives of sheep, meat and goat producers, livestock and property agents, major sale yards and markets and livestock transporters as well. That statement from the Ag Minister. Claire Scriven. ABC Listen. What's the collective noun for podcasts? You can listen big to whatever it is on the ABC Listen app. Like True Mystery in Expanse from the Dead. Water was pouring into my cabin and rising. Big Ideas with Natasha Mitchell. And I have a cracker for you today. Or Roy and HG's Bludging on the Blind Side. Electrifying is the word to come to mind. A vast trove of podcasts and quality audiobooks anywhere you want. Download the free ABC Listen app. You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, huge increases in insurance premiums are pushing farmers to consider running the gauntlet and leaving some of their machinery uninsured. Ryan Milgate is a farmer and grains councillor with the Victorian Farmers Federation. He's based in the Victorian Wimmera region. And he says insurance bills have gone through the roof. Wow. Insurance bills have been rising probably for the last three or four years. I've just, well, just looking at ours quickly this morning, you know, we've more than doubled since sort of pre-COVID levels. So, you know, the increases have been very significant. And is it twofold, Ryan, that the value of what you're insuring, particularly machinery, is increasing a lot, but then uh, aside from that, the, the premiums themselves are increasing as well? Yeah, well, that that's personally what we've seen from our perspective. And so, look, I can't really comment from the, you know, the, the risk side of why those premiums have, have gone up. But certainly in, in our situation that I think everyone knows the cost of everything's gone up and new machinery and, and the value of the machinery that you have got. And if you do have to, you know, replace it, the cost of that is, you know, increased significantly as well. So we're sort of getting a double whammy here, which is not great. Can you just give me a sense of what, what a typical farmer, I know it's hard to say typical farmer, but what a farmer's insurance bill may be when they're insuring, you know, a few sheds, a few million dollars worth of gear, uh, maybe crop insurance on top of that. How much could they be paying out? Yeah, well, look, if you leave the crop insurance out for a, for a second, I, I think it wouldn't be hard to find plenty of operations with, you know, insurance bills in the north of 100,000 comfortably, um, and they're not large operations they're like they're not you know not large corporate style operations just medium to large farmers but yeah definitely lots you know 50 grand doesn't go very far at all anymore once you start insuring particularly you know harvesters and sprayers and tractors and stuff like that and given how substantial that cost is are you hearing people scale back on their on their insurance and 
uh, cancel their insurance on items that they typically would have always insured? Yeah, look, I have lots of conversations just here, there and everywhere and people talk about self-insuring with lots of probably more the smaller stuff. I mean, it's you know, it's incredibly risky to insure an expensive machine like a, a harvester or something that you've got. Well, it's a requirement to have them financed. So, but yeah, certainly, you know, the smaller bits and pieces, the uh, older stuff that you normally would have had, you know, insured just in case is dropping off. And a lot of talk around crop insurance. Um, I mean, that's another, there'd be people paying out that figure I quoted earlier again, just for crop insurance. I'm hearing a lot of guys, you know, with fire and hail are looking at self-insurance or, or you know, depending on cash flow and um, equity and all that kind of stuff, there's, you know, people are making decisions to potentially take on greater risks than they, they may have been prepared to in the past. And in terms of why premiums have gone up so much, I mean, we hear lines from the insurance companies, lines like uh, more uh, unpredictable weather and fire and flood, etc. But do, do, do individuals feel like they're, perhaps if that's not an issue at their farm, that they're paying for the risks uh, of others? Uh, 100%. That's the sentiment that's going around is... Um, Look, you don't want to see anyone suffer any losses anywhere, but it's pretty hard to swallow that, you know, on the Wimmera Plains, your insurance is going up because of a, a flood impact on a on a major city, you know, in northern Australia. It's kind of, it, it is a bit of a pill to swallow and tr- get your head around. Where to from here, Ryan? Because these the costs typically only go in one direction. So are farmers just going to have to keep tackling these, these rising premiums? Yeah, well, look... Um, Honestly, I'm not really sure off the bat what the alternatives are. You know, like I alluded to before, if you're expensive machinery and, 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 you know, where you're getting finance with the bank, you know, that's a requirement that does have to be insured. So I think we're always still going to be using insurance, but I think people are being more and more, um, you know, making sure that they haven't got things left on the list or they're really starting to self-assess the risks they take and, you know, what they are prepared to wear. And, you know, same as I guess households are, you know, trimming costs where they can. Um, I think that sort of applies to, you know, farm businesses and um, and insurance. Okay. So with these insurance premiums going up so much, Ryan, I guess it's coming at a time where a lot of people have had a string of good seasons and they're probably maybe reasonably well positioned to pay those increases. But the premiums will still be there at those high levels when when we have bad years, which will undoubtedly happen. So will that be when costs like this become really problematic? I think it will, Angus, yeah. I think, you know, much of the, well, our listen, the listening area here has had a fairly fortunate run, the vast majority. So, you know, while while we say, you know, it, it is a hugely increased burden, uh, it's still a burden that's being handled. But, yeah, if we get, you know, you, you drop interest rates and, and all these other costs on top, and um, some stage there's a straw's going to break the camel's back somewhere. As life goes on, we will see some dry years and leaner years, and that's when it will become really top of mind as to what's going on. That's Ryan Milgate there. He's a Wimmera-based farmer and a grains councillor with the Victorian Farmers Federation. He was speaking there to Angus Verley. The time here on the South Australian Country Hour is 24 minutes past 12, and you're with Selena Green. On this Friday, let's go now to the Weather Bureau where Hannah Marsh awaits us. She's our forecaster today. Hello, Hannah. Hi, Selena. What's the story as we round out the week? 
Well, we did have a bit of cloud over the agricultural area this morning and we did see the odd 0.2 to 0.4 of a millimetre about southern coasts and ranges earlier this morning. But this cloud has uh, burnt off and continued to contract to the south and we're really uh, cloud-free other than just about those that coastal fringe for much of the state. Uh, there is a little bit of wind around, particularly in the north, so is there is the possibility of seeing some raised dust in the far northeast of the northeast pastoral district again today. Uh, having a look at the temperatures uh, that it's been to so far today, it's been up to 25 degrees at Sejuna, 22 at Port Lincoln, 23 so far for Wyala, 33 so far at Cooper Pedy, 32 at Woomera, 26 at Renmark, 27 so far at Clare, 24 at Murray Bridge, it's been up to 20 degrees at Mount Lofty, 21 at High Marsh Island. 23 at Kingscote and 23 also at Mount Gambia so far. Then the high pressure system that's resulting in these stable conditions currently south of the Bight will move out to the east. So this is going to allow the winds uh, to tend to the north tomorrow. So we're going to see uh, the temperatures start to increase tomorrow. There will be a little bit of cloud around in the morning again in that coastal fringe and even the slight chance of shallow fog patches uh, but they won't last long tomorrow. We're looking at another dry and sunny day. Uh, temperatures again we are looking at above average to well above average temperatures with a maximum of 35 expected for Sejuna, 29 at Port Lincoln, 35 at Wyala, 40 for Cooper Pedy, Woomera 39, Broken Hill 36, Renmark 38, we've also got 36 for Clare and Murray Bridge, 33 for Mount Barker tomorrow, 28 at Victor Harbour, 31 at Kingscote and 30 at Mount Gambia. But the peak of the heat will be on Sunday. Uh, we'll have fresh northerly to northwesterly winds uh, ahead of a fresh and gusty south to southwesterly change. This change is expected to move through the west and the south on Sunday and then through the northeast on Monday. And uh, as mentioned with those temperatures starting to push up towards the 40 degree mark, particularly through western parts of the state. Uh, but this change will bring milder conditions as we head towards Monday and Tuesday. We also have the low pressure system uh, associated with ex-tropical cyclone Kiralee, which starts to move uh, very close to the northeast corner of the state on Sunday and bringing with it some isolated shower and uh, thunderstorm activity. Now there is the possibility of seeing some locally heavy falls associated with these showers and thunderstorms. Uh, there is a little bit of uncertainty exactly where that low will move and therefore how far into South Australia those showers and thunderstorms will extend uh, but they will mostly be confined to that northeast corner. Uh, then on Monday, that low pressure system moves out to the east, uh, taking the showers and thunderstorms with it. Uh, but there is still the possibility of seeing some locally heavy falls uh, during the morning period. Behind the change uh, further south, there's the chance of seeing some isolated showers about the agricultural area and also the southwest, uh, but not expecting much in the way of precipitation associated with these showers, generally less than the two to three millimetre sort of mark. 
Uh, the winds will also be quite fresh and gusty again on a Monday and Tuesday. Um, but uh, having a look at the cumulative rainfall totals up until the end of Tuesday, we're generally looking at less than three millimetres about southern coasts with those falls of five to 20 millimetres possible in the far northeast from Sunday and the chance of those heavier falls in the far northeast corner, Selena. Thanks, Hannah. Enjoy the rest of your Friday. Thank you. Hannah Marsh there from the Weather Bureau. Now looking at the western inland of New South Wales for the Upper Western District tomorrow, sunny with south to southeasterly winds, 15 to 20 k's an hour, tending east to southeasterlies, 15 to 25 kilometres per hour early in the morning. They'll become light in the early afternoon. Overnight temperatures between 19 and 24 in the day, they'll reach up to around 40 degrees. For the lower western district tomorrow, a sunny day also with light winds. Overnight temps getting down to between 15 and 18. In the day, those temperatures reaching up into the high 30s. It's coming up to half past 12 here on the South Australian Country Hour. Coming up in this next half an hour, we're going to talk about snakes on your property. What are your attitudes towards snakes that you come across on the farm? Leave them alone or get that thing out of here? Find out why you're being encouraged to or just leave them there. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green. Hope you're having a great Friday so far. Coming up. Have you ever heard this phrase or maybe you've uttered it yourself? Only good snakes are dead snake. You'll hear from someone who's working to change attitudes like that, especially amongst farmers. He says snakes can actually be a farmer's friend, and they're more prevalent than you might like to think. Brown snakes, for example, can be incredibly abundant. Um, you know, we did some field work where we had uh, 100 snakes per square kilometre. Um, that's a hell of a lot of brown snakes. You don't see them all that often because they spend most of their time underground. I say thanks for that. That is a lot of snakes, and you'll hear why he reckons you should leave them be. Keen to hear from you, especially if you are on the land and you've changed your attitude towards snakes. Are you happy to leave them be? Have you always felt like that or have you come around to snakes on your property? Do you see the value in them? Uh, I'd like you to share your experience today. My talkback number, 1300 222 or the text line, 0467. Nine double two eight nine one. Now, before we get into headlines, there has been an announcement today regarding one of the world's largest wine companies, Accolade Wines, which has headquarters here in South Australia. It has been announced today that a consortium of international institutional investors uh, called Australian Wine Holdco Limited, or known as AWL, well, it's reached an agreement with Accolade Wines on a recapitalisation plan, which aims to stabilise the financial future of the business. Now, we have received a written statement, only a written statement today. I was told there would be no further statement when I asked for someone to speak with us on the program. But according to this written statement, Accolade Wines has experienced acute operating and financial conditions driven by numerous economic factors, including a structural downturn in wine demand, cost inflation, excess grape supply, given historical arrangements and elevated debt levels. And there has been quite a bit of reporting on the situation facing Accolade Wines. Now, this statement says this agreement is an important first step in a process to stabilise the business. 
under the terms of the agreement, which is subject to regulatory approvals and other conditions, AWL will take equity ownership of Accolade Wines. Backed by AWL, the recapitalisation will allow Accolade Wines to substantially reduce its total senior interest-bearing debt, providing greater operating flexibility and access to funds to grow the business. Now, the statement says this plan is targeted to be implemented by mid-year, but as you heard, there will be some process around approvals and conditions. But still reading from the statement, an AWL spokesperson said, Accolade Wines has a long, proud Australian history as a world-class wine producer. We hope it will remain so for many decades to come. We hope this restructure, if implemented, will help build a more secure, long-term future for the business. We'll be working with and supporting Accolade's management to focus on operations and stakeholders. A statement from the spokesperson goes on to say, we recognise Accolade Wines' South Australian operations will be crucial to the success of the company and understand the important role the company plays in the local grape-growing industry and the broader South Australian economy. We are committed to working with Accolade's business partners of growers and customers to rebuild a sustainable business. So now I've brought you up to date on what is happening with Accolade. Let's cross to Chris McLaughlin for your 10, uh, 12.30 headlines, I should say. Hello, Chris. Good afternoon, Selena. The Fair Work Ombudsman is investigating the underpayment of international students of more than $400,000 by a food business in Adelaide. It alleged the underpayments involved 36 employees over a four-year period. Most were students from Vietnam with one allegedly underpaid by nearly $60,000. The Federal Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, has accused the Coalition of looking for excuses not to support the government's revised Stage 3 tax cuts. Labor wants to increase support to low- and middle-income earners. The Coalition leader, Peter Dutton, says the revised tax brackets are a broken promise. Overseas and Israel is preparing to advance its war against Hamas further south in Gaza as diplomatic efforts in pursuit of a ceasefire accelerate. Its defence minister says military success in southern Gaza means forces can advance to Rafah on the southern border. Police say they found no evidence an anti-Semitic phrase was chanted during a pro-Palestinian rally outside the Sydney Opera House last October. They say forensic analysis of audio and video files of the demonstration yielded no evidence of the phrase being uttered. More ABC News at one o'clock. Thank you, Chris. Chris McLaughlin with those headlines. Now, if you spot a low-flying plane around some suburbs of Adelaide, it could be dropping a welcome visitor off at your place. It's all in the fight against fruit fly taking hold in South Australia. The Department of Primary Industries and Regions Director of Plant and Invasive Species Biosecurity, Nick Seckham, joins us now to explain. Good afternoon, Nick, and thanks for joining us on the show today. Good to be with you, Selena. Now, you're telling people today to uh, keep an eye out for a low-flying plane over Adelaide. Tell us what this plane's going to be doing. Yeah, so we're actually doing a, a preemptive piece of work, a preemptive strike against fruit fly in Metro Adelaide starting next week, so during February and March. And so what it is, is it's a preventative um, release of sterile fruit flies. And um, people would have heard of us using sterile fruit flies in the past, hopefully, when we have outbreaks. There are, there are no fruit fly outbreaks in Adelaide right now, but um, this is a way of hopefully preventing any outbreak from occurring. So the plane will actually be, what, dumping flies over the city? Yeah, so it's got a special metered um, relief unit in the back of the plane with an auger in it, it, a bit like a a seeding machine. And the sterile flies are loaded into that and they are augered out into the jet stream and then they float down into metropolitan Adelaide and and do their job. So they'll see the plane running probably 400 metre lines across the city around Woodville South at about 500 feet height. And hopefully um, they they won't be able to see any flies coming out because they're so small, but um, that should go pretty smoothly, hopefully. How many are you expecting to release as part of this? 
So what we aim to do with sterile flies is just swamp the area with, with sterile flies. So if there were any wild fruit flies in the area, um, they get overwhelmed. So we'll be putting out 6 million sterile flies every week for six weeks and, and they, will, they will live for about that long. So at the, the end of it, there could be 30 or 40 million sterile flies that we've released into, into Metro Adelaide. You mentioned there about once you release them, they, they go off and do their job. Just remind us what their job actually is to do. <laughs> so in short, Selena, their, their job is to get in the way. So if there's one or two wild flies in the environment, and, and we did find one med fly, Mediterranean fruit fly, in one of our traps in November of last year, and, and that's why we're doing this, but we haven't seen anything since. But if there was one or two Mediterranean fruit flies out there, there's millions of these sterile flies that get in the way. So the wild flies can never find each other, they can never mate, and so they aren't able to produce new med fly, and so they, they're blockers, they get in the way. Right. And um, why Adelaide? Well, we've always um, been uh, very keen to make sure that we maintain our fruit fly freedom in South Australia. It's worth $1.3 billion to our horticultural industries, or that's the value of the horticultural industries in South Australia. And so this is something we've done many times before during outbreak. But our last outbreak two or three years ago was the biggest we've ever seen in metropolitan Adelaide, and we, we, we don't want to do that again. And, and so this is a preemptive strike. And um, by doing this, hopefully we can prevent a bad outbreak from occurring. Now, people might be listening to this going, oh, is this a good idea? You know, there's cases in the past of releasing things into, uh, into, the, uh, into the environment that haven't worked out so well. Are there any potential drawbacks or risks of releasing these sterile flies? So it's one of the beauties of this technique. And like I said, it's something we have used many, many times before. It, it, firstly, they're, they're sterile flies. They aren't able to breed. And so their lifespan is about a month or six weeks. And, and, and then they will no longer be in the environment. Even though it sounds like a lot, people will be very um, unlikely to ever see these fruit flies. They will um, quickly go to where any wild flies might be. And, of course, there's no off-target damage, not like a, a herbicide or an insecticide. We're not treating anything with any chemicals. They're a very uh, user-friendly technique because they actually target the fruit flies and stop them from breeding without applying any chemicals or any treatments along those lines. So these fruit flies that you're releasing, and um, quite a lot of them, where are you getting them all from? I know you've got a facility here in South Australia that is pumping out sterile fruit flies by the well, the millions. Is that where they're coming from? We, we do have a, a facility in Port Augusta, but that is actually for a different species of fruit fly. That's the Queensland fruit fly. And all of those sterile flies are being used in the Riverland at the moment where we do have outbreaks. And so 40 million of those every week have been used in the Riverland for many weeks. We've put out over a billion of those flies in the Riverland now since we started. This is a Mediterranean fruit fly, which is something we've had a problem with in Metro Adelaide in the past. These actually come from Western Australia and um, they've been bred over there and sent over here as pupa and we've bred them out and now we're, we're releasing them um, to, as I said, hopefully stop a problem from occurring. Right. Uh, any plans to do this in other parts of the state uh, once you've finished in Adelaide? No, so this is a really targeted six-week program, as I said, to try and stop a problem from happening. If we were to have an outbreak somewhere, then this is something we would normally do when we always use sterile flies to combat outbreaks, but we're, we're hopeful we, we won't have any outbreaks. We, we haven't had any outbreaks in metropolitan Adelaide since that bad one two years ago. Back in middle of 2021 was the last time we had outbreaks. So this is a, just a planned six-week program to stop one of those from happening and there's no other, other plans to use sterile flies at this stage, um, Mediterranean sterile flies anywhere else. Well, let's hope you won't have to. Uh, Nick Seckham, thank you very much for joining us on the program today. No problems, anytime.
That is Nick Seckham, who is the Department of Primary Industries and Regions Director of Plant and Invasive Species Biosecurity. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Where's 20 minutes to one? Well, more than $30 million of joint state and federal government money will go towards short-term repairs of flood damage levees between Manham and Wellington. Sheep and cattle farmer Joanne Pfeiffer had her Murray Bridge farm flooded twice last year when the state-owned Long Flat levee breached. She says action is needed as soon as possible, but her community has welcomed the funding. Initial reaction was, oh, thank goodness. So surprise and relief really, because as I understand, this is funding that will go towards the interim uh, repair of the uh, flooded levees, both government and private. So this is a continuation, but only part of the story. It was also a relief to see in the press release that um, both governments are still identifying that there needs to be a long-term plan to give us very good security sitting behind these levees because we all know what we can produce here and we also know that a lot of those levees are state infrastructure so they all have to be good to go for whatever, obviously, the next flood because I'm sure there will be one. How's the feel around yourself and other irrigators in your community? Like, How are people feeling at the moment? I think we're still feeling very anxious. You know, we see that water happening up in Queensland and we, we know that everything that's in the basin has to come past us. So our community of impacted irrigators is certainly still feeling very anxious um, and we've been very concerned that it's the slow process of getting these levees even interimly repaired hasn't been there. So to see this funding, I hope that means it enables the Department for Water and Primary Industries Department to get on with securing the repairs that they've done till now. We're heading into winter and so that then limits the work that can be done on those levees during a, a wet time. And so, yeah... The community, I'm sure today, will feel relieved that the funding's been announced, but once again, we will just want to see the action happen very, very quickly. That's Murray Bridge farmer Joanne Pfeiffer. Well, Environment and Water Minister Susan Close says the timeline for the levy repairs is still to be determined. We're really excited to have about $30 million to spend on levy repairs, both on private and public land. What we're expecting is to get out on the ground really quickly now that the money's been approved to work with landholders. We'll have to develop up exactly what kind of works are required and there's a parliamentary process we have to go through because it's so much public money. But we expect that during this year and probably into next year we'll be seeing a lot of on-ground works to really fix up the levies in in a state that means that we can have some confidence that they have integrity. Uh, You mentioned uh, this year and next year. Do you sort of have a a time of year in mind that you might be able to uh, sort of commence those works? It's difficult to be definitive because we need to get out and make sure that we're looking at what works are required. We've had to wait a long time for this because we needed the levies to 
dry out. Uh, they were so saturated and then even though we've had dry periods, we've then had wet periods again. And we need to be looking at the structural integrity of these levees. So it's not just uh, the surface and it's certainly not whether they've got holes in them because they have largely been repaired. It really is about making sure that these have got structural integrity. So it's taken us a while to wait for that dewatering and the proper drying out and then we have to get in and really look and, and find out what's necessary and then have a plan of attack. So while everyone in the department and the government here wants to work as quickly as we can, we need to do it in a, in a way that's going to be effective as well. Initially, we needed to repair the holes to enable the de to allow dewatering and then to repair the holes. And now we need to make sure that there's structural integrity and that we really understand what the condition of the levees are. We'll be able to do quite a lot of work with this $30-odd million of government money, both federal and state. But then at the same time, we're working on the longer-term plan of what height do these levees need to be at and how do we fund that across the public and private lands. That's a more complex and more expensive stage, but we need to do this one first, and this will have a lasting benefit. Farmers in the area have previously raised concerns about a lack of consultation from landholders for the levy repairs. Um, will you be working with them to ensure that their local knowledge is listened to? That is absolutely part of the approach of the department and I think we've all learned quite a lot over the last year and a half in how we can work better together across this really complex levy system. So that's the intention is absolutely to listen to local knowledge and also of course to bring in the expertise of engineers who understand what kind of clay is required, what kind of width and what kind of height. So if we can bring together that local expertise and that kind of engineering expertise bring it together, then we can show the best of ourselves. And I think largely through the floods, that was demonstrated by public servants from the state and also from local government working alongside private contractors and landholders. That spirit of just pulling together and getting it done that we saw in the floods, I want to see us continue as we go through this repair process. That's the state's Environment and Water Minister, Susan Close, and she was speaking there with Sophie Landau. This is the South Australian Country Hour. I'm Selena Green, and it's 14 minutes to one. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, the only good snake is a dead snake. When you bump into a snake on your property, maybe the temptation is to try and kill it. But there's research that argues that snakes like the widely found brown snake can be hugely beneficial on agricultural land and could be a friend to farmers. Professor of Evolutionary Biology at Macquarie University, Rick Shine, is asking farmers to tolerate snakes. I asked him if attitudes were changing. Yeah, look, absolutely. I mean, I certainly think that 20 or 30 years ago, you'd, almost everyone was saying the only good snakes are dead snakes. Uh, these days, there's a lot of Australians who are prepared to coexist with snakes. Uh, so that's encouraging for someone like me, who's very fond of the creatures. Uh, but, you know, essentially what we need to do is to work out how to do it and why we should do it. And, and that's what this recent paper was about. So trying to bring more people on board, not maybe necessarily being fond of snakes, but more happy to coexist with them. You've been doing some research into the benefits of of having snakes around the place? Yeah, my colleague Peter Merchant and I um, sort of thought it was worth trying to put some numbers on, on that argument. The obvious cost of having venomous snakes like brown snakes around is that they can bite you and you can die. 
But the reality is that very few people in Australia die from snake bite. It's an average of less than three people a year across the entire country. So the risk is actually much smaller than most people would imagine. And in terms of the benefit, um, brown snakes, for example, can be incredibly abundant. Um, you know, we did some field work where we had uh, 100 snakes per square kilometre in farmland down near Leeton. Um, that's a hell of a lot of brown snakes. You don't see them all that often because they spend most of their time underground. Uh, we had transmitters in snakes, so we, we knew what they were doing. And, and they're basically wandering around down in those burrows catching mice, and they don't actually come out all that often. So, you know, if you've got 100 brown snakes per square kilometre and each of those brown snakes is eating two or three mice per week, you start multiplying those numbers through and you end up with several thousand mice uh, per year being taken out per square kilometre. And that can actually have a big impact on agricultural productivity. Because this, this is a natural pest killer. Um, the only thing you required really to do is just to, to leave them alone and let them go about their business. Absolutely. They're, they're a fantastic rodent control officer because they can go down the burrows after the mice. Um, you know, if you're just killing mice on the surface, you're probably getting the adult males that are wandering around looking for girlfriends and so on. Uh, but a, a brown snake can go almost anywhere a mouse can go. And so they're getting rid of the females and the young ones and so on as well. So they're really very effective at doing it. Now, a lot of people might think, well, if I'm letting snakes be and there's more of them around the property, then doesn't that then increase the chances of me getting bitten? Is the, is the cost, you know, to benefit worth it? Yeah, I mean, the other factor that comes in here is that a high proportion of bites come when people try to kill snakes. Um, Brown snakes don't want to bite people. They'd much rather run away. Um, but if they're threatened and if they think that they're about to get knocked on the head, then, of course, they will retaliate. So that a policy of tolerating brown snakes is actually reducing the risk of snake bite quite substantially because you don't have a snake that's terrified uh, and is afraid that it's about to get murdered. Can snakes get used to people? If Do they move around much? I mean, if you've got, you know, a snake that you're aware of on your property that maybe you spot from time to time in the in the same place, can they kind of get used to you or know that you, you're not going to hassle them? They certainly don't move all that far most of the time. So the brown snakes that we had radio transmitters in had remarkably small home ranges. Um, you know, they'd, they'd live in a bunch of, of mouse burrows, um, for a couple of weeks, clean out all the mice and then it moved to the, the next adjacent burrow system you know, 100 metres away. Um, people certainly talk about, you know, look, there's a snake that they've been seeing, um, you know, a couple of times a week for several years and there's a suggestion, and it's only a suggestion, that those snakes are less of a problem because they know who you are, you know where they are, and they know where the hole is to get away from. So they're, they're much more likely to be able to sort of zip away um, somewhere very close by. If you start killing those snakes and other snakes start wandering in from the far paddocks, you've got an animal that isn't so used to encountering people and it doesn't know where the safe refuges are. And it's probably a more dangerous animal for that reason. Mm. Um, so as you say, these snakes, if they're there, they're eating mice. Obviously, if mice population is under control, um, you don't need a lot of mice to, to sustain crop damage. So if they're taking those mice out of that ecosystem, that's a benefit for everybody. Yeah, look, absolutely. And of course, the other, you know, the common method that people use to control mice is um, chemicals, very toxic chemicals. Um, and so that 
raises the risk of secondary poisoning. You know, that poison mouse comes stumbling around, lies out there and dies. Uh, the pet dog finds it, meets it. The goanna eats it, uh, the, um, the owl and so on. And you can have all kinds of secondary effects of having these rather nasty chemicals around. So, you know, that's another benefit as well for, for tolerating brown snakes, especially out in the far paddocks where they're very unlikely to come wandering in through your back door. So this is your takeaway message, particularly for farmers out there, is, you know, look at tolerating those snakes. I imagine there may be some circumstances where people don't feel comfortable having a snake around, especially if it gets inside the house or something like that. But if you, if you can, to tolerate that snake and, and welcome it? Yeah, look, absolutely. You know, I mean, there'll be situations where there's a snake in a place that you, you simply don't want it to be. Um, and hopefully you'll, you'll get a licensed snake catcher to come and remove it rather than hit it on the head. Uh, you know, that's, that's up to people to make that decision as to how to deal with it. But particularly if you're if you're out there on the paddocks a fair way from, from the house, that snake is probably doing you a hell of a lot more good than it is harm. That's Professor of Evolutionary Biology at Macquarie University, Rick Shine. Well, southeast-based snake catcher David Miles says, unfortunately, he still does hear that people are killing snakes instead of calling for professional help to safely catch and relocate. They're part of nature. They don't want to be near us and... Like a lot of people that get bitten are trying to kill snakes. A lot of farmers that I talk to now, if they see one near the house, they'll try and get rid of it. But if it's out in the paddock, they leave them. And that's the way it should be. And when you say get rid of them, not kill them, just move them? Yeah, well, <laughs> some of them kill them. Uh, I mean, the old farmers in particular were always taught and they taught their kids to kill a snake if they saw one. Is that changing at all, do you think? Are they getting better with moving them as opposed to killing them? Yes, I think think they are. And I think part of what I'm doing, making people aware of what these snakes are all about, I think that's helping quite a lot. Do you ever get requests from farmers to pop a snake back on their property? <laughs> Not too many people are over keen on that. I can't imagine why. That's Matt Gambia-based snake catcher David Miles, and he was speaking there to Elsie Adamo. Well, finally today, have you caught the second season of Muster Dogs, which is back on ABC TV? It follows five Australian border collies who have 12 months to go from pups to pros on a working farm. Now, in Tassie's Central Highlands, seventh-generation farmer Russ Fowler has been busy training up dog Molly to eventually manage roughly 18,000 sheep. It's sort of like going to footy, uh, an AFL training session, uh, opposed to going to your, your local footy training session. It's just all those little things that you pick up that just quicken the process up in training a dog. I, I see Molly as more of a, a, um, a sort of two-year-old to three-year-old dog uh, in terms of her, her ability to the work she can, she can do. All she really needs to put the finishing touches on her is, um, yeah, just grow up, basically. I mean, she's only a, a teenager, so, you know, i just got to give her time and allow her to do that. So, yeah, Molly is um, a, a border collie from uh, New South Wales up at Dubbo, um, is where, where she originates from. Uh, she's part of a 100-year-old bloodline and has done uh, really well and... Um, yeah, very happy with how it all went and turned out. Yeah. Tell me about the first time that you met her. What was that like? Uh, so it was pretty interesting. We're in the garden here now, um, and I had no no idea what I was getting or you know what 
what the dog would look like or anything. And, yeah, she's been a great addition. Why did you apply for muster dogs? So my son, Charlie, he, uh, he was obsessed with it the first season. Uh, yeah, watched it over and over. So I thought, um, yeah, the application came up on Facebook and I thought, oh, well, I'll give it a crack, see what happens, not expecting to actually get to where we are now. Family must have been pretty excited too, right? <laughs> oh, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Charlie was over the moon and, um, yeah, no, it was, um, yeah, good experience because our daughter was only six weeks old at the time, so we just... Been, gone through you know, the new edition process and then, yeah, to have this on was sort of a cherry on top sort of thing, yeah. Can you tell me a bit about what the experience has been like, how demanding it's been for you? Yeah, it's um, it's been quite different because originally I I train my dogs off my, my other dogs, but that doesn't work under this technique. So, yeah, it's this is a more refined way of training a dog. It's sort of like a diet. You see how the, the end result and it looks great and everything like that and you get all amped up, but then, you know, not always you follow through on the process, whereas um, this process I didn't have the option of not following through. So it's been great for me in that sense because I've had to stick to it and um, I've learned a lot out of it. And how did Molly go fitting in with all the other dogs? My pack's pretty laid back, so... Um, when a new one comes in, as long as they're uh, laid back themselves, which I was lucky, Molly is, uh, she slotted right in. Is there anything that you reckon you'd do differently next time with training a dog after what you've learnt? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty full-on process, really. Like, it, I had to make time to, to do it. So, yeah, I had to set aside time and make sure that we were getting to those stages in a timely fashion. So uh, probably going forward, I'd just uh, allow a bit more time, do the basics over a longer period of time. Yeah, you sort of need to allow the dog to grow and not put too much on them because really in that first 12 months, you're packing a lot of information into the dog. Um, so, yeah, you just need to allow that dog to grow. At sheep farmer Russ Fowler speaking to Clancy Barlin. Uh, he and his border collie, poly, border collie pup Molly, <laughs> part of this season's muster dogs. Deborah Moradale's just texted in to say she's a big fan of the show. She can't wait. Well, the great news is you can catch it up now on ABC iview uh let's find out what nikolai bailhuts has in store for you in his program today hello nikolai happy friday happy friday to you as well uh you probably have a credit score do you know about the world of credit scores no i hope it's it's a good one (laughs) well yeah that's the the, 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 it is the hope isn't it it's basically uh, an algorithm that's drawn up by a bunch of different companies that determines whether or not you can get things like a home loan. Well, there's a warning out at the moment now that um, there's this thing that I'd, I'd heard about a little bit, uh, which is basically kind of credit card hopping, where you just go from one credit card to another one to another one, because a lot of them have really good sign-on bonuses. You get freaking fly points and stuff like mm. that. So people jump from one to the other to the other. But it turns out if you do that... Uh, your credit score can go down quite significantly because 
the credit companies look at it and go, well, hang on, why is why's Nikolai got 35 credit cards in the past six months? Yes. So it's a, it's a, I mean, the financial world is complicated enough, but we're going to try and get to the bottom of that. And also school's back and guess what? Head lice is back as well. Oh, no, thank Hooray. you. Hooray. Oh, that's a ton of fun. Thank you, Nikolai. Have a great show. Nikolai Bailharts, he'll be with you for afternoons. Thanks so much for your company. News time. To get started with the ABC Listen app, find the app store on your phone. Search for ABC Listen, tap the pink ABC Listen icon and download it. Congratulations. Now you've got ABC Radio in your pocket. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.